Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, I think chapter 15 is going to be pretty helpful for us because chapter 15 has a lot to say about our tongues, our mouths, the words that we speak. If you have a problem with your mouth, would you raise your hand, please? Yeah, yeah. a lot of us do, unfortunately. You know, I find, it, I find it significant that James says these words. James chapter 3, he says this, We all stumble in many ways. Yes, we all agree. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. It's almost as if what James is saying there is that, you know, we all have our issues, and your issues might be a little bit different than mine, but one issue that we all have is the mouth, the tongue, what we say. And it's almost as if what James is saying is the the guy or the gal that can get that under control, that can submit that to the lordship of Christ, he's a perfect man. He's a complete man. He's the one that has gone through the sanctification process and is looking a whole lot like Jesus. And so it seems what James is saying here is that tongue, it's a constant source. It's a, it's a constant struggle for us. And thus, if we want to be followers of Christ, it's an area of our lives which should be a constant care and concern in our lives. It should be something that we think about and we worry about and we're concerned about. And Lord, are my words honoring to you? Are they pleasing to you? Are they building other people up? Or are they tearing other people down? And so Ironside, Henry Ironside, a great Bible commentator from the 1950s and and before, he said this, he said, it's impossible for man to estimate aright the power for good or evil that lies in the tongue. And I think we forget that. And sometimes words come out of our mouths which have such a biting effect on a person forever, for for the rest of their lives perhaps. And we want to be very careful that the words that we speak as followers of Jesus are for good and not for evil. And so much of that's going to be covered in chapter 15. And that's why I think it'll be such a practical chapter for us that every one of us is going to say, oh, that's me, and I can take something away from it. And so let's go ahead and dig into that. Verse 1, it says this, speaking initially about the words that come out, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you experienced that? Maybe probably the negative where just your little response, oh boy, why'd I say that? And now the problem is just magnified. But a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And you think of how many difficulties could be avoided if we simply responded to others in a more appropriate manner. And yes, people come at us, they say things, they're in a bad place, and they give it to us, and we want to give it right back to them. And in doing so, though, the problem is exacerbated. Charles Spurgeon, I tell you about him a lot, he shared a fun story I thought at least. And he told the story of a time he responded in anger to his neighbor's dog. Now he had this neighbor uh, who the dog, the dog was a neighbor, the dog would come into his garden and he would dig up Charles Spurgeon's garden regularly, with regularity. And Spurgeon was like, hey, could you watch your dog? And the, the guy next door wasn't doing anything. So the dog just kept coming over and digging. And so one day Spurgeon had had enough. And so he threw a stick in the direction of the dog. I, I imagine he threw it at him, but most of you, some of you will be offended by that. So anyway, he threw a stick in the direction of the dog, hoping to kind of scare the dog away. The dog would sort of learn his lesson. And what the dog did, interesting, the dog went over, picked up the stick in its little mouth, and came running back to Spurgeon and dropped it at its feet, and then wagged like its little butt. 
And Spurgeon, angry, looking at this dog, wagging his little butt with his little eyes looking up at him, he said, well, what else could I do but pet the dog and give it some care? You know, because the dog's soft answer, so to speak, turned away his wrath. And it does do that. When you give a soft answer, it turns away another's wrath. The way that we respond to a person can either stir up their wrath even more or it can ameliorate the wrath. It can just kind of let it go away where they're no longer angry with you, almost entirely perhaps. And when we are responding to someone that is already angry and we respond in a way that with a harsh word or something to that effect, all you're really doing is stirring up that person's fleshly nature. And nothing good is going to come from that. And so we look to, if you will, have a cool, calm, measured response. And we respond in such a way that the person, rather than fueling the flame, it puts water on the flame. The scripture says here, a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think that would just simply be a helpful reminder. All right, so file it away. The next time you want to fire back at somebody else that has fired at you, a soft answer turns away wrath. Amen? All right, verse 2. It says, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pours out folly. We've seen similar uh, proverbs to this, this idea that a wise man or woman does not feel they need to run their mouth off to show everyone how wise or how smart that they are. Um, but as we see here, the fool feels that he has to. It says the, the mouth of the fools pour out folly. Now, I will say this though, there are times when a wise man or woman needs to speak up. There are times when they need to speak into a circumstance. So that's why it says here, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. So again, we've seen plenty of examples where the wise person will just kind of keep their mouth shut and people will say, well, what do you think? And then when they finally do open their mouth, people will listen. That being said, there are other times where the wise individual needs to say, you know what, I just need to speak into this situation. I'm hearing all kinds of craziness. I just need to speak into this particular situation. Solomon would say in the book of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. You're familiar with it, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And then he'll go on about halfway through that chapter and he'll say there is a time to keep silence and there is a time to speak. And the wise individual knows the difference. When to speak into a situation and when not to. The fool, on the other hand, who has nothing of value to share, is always ready to share it. They're always ready, as it says here, to pour forth their knowledge. And so the mark then of wisdom is to know when to speak and when to be quiet. And notice, though, also in the verses, when, to sp- when you do speak, to speak in such a way that it is a benefit to your hearer. And so if you look there, it says, the, wise, the, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth, the mouths, I should say, of fools pours out folly. In the King James, if you have that version, it's worded this way. It says, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright. And that gives the implication that you can have knowledge and use it in a wrong way. That it's possible to use knowledge not aright, to use the word that's found there. But what a wise person will do, they'll pour forth helpful information at the right time. And that's what causes them to be a blessing to their hearer that is around them. And so the wise person knows when to speak, when not to speak, and when they do speak, they know how to use knowledge or right. That is something that's going to be a blessing to the hearer and not for some other purpose. Does that make sense? All right, so let, put a guard over your tongue. That's what it means, that you don't just say whatever comes out of your mouth. 
but you think through the things that you're going to say. Will this be a blessing? We'll talk more about that as we go. Verse 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping, eye, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Always the eyes of the Lord, we know, are upon the children of men. We know that. Now, here's the thing. Whether those men be good or pursuing good or whether they be pursuing evil, the Scripture's clear. Nothing is hidden from our Father. I find it interesting, this word watch here, where it says keeping watch on the evil and the good, this word watch here is a word which probably would be better translated to convey the idea as inspects. And so I'll put it in there. It says the eyes of the Lord are in every place inspecting the evil and the good. And what that means is, is not that he just sort of, it catches his attention. Oh yeah, I saw it. And pretty much said, yeah, but I saw something over there happen. That's not what it means when it says uh, that, he, what's the exact wording of it? Keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's not that he just kind of sees it, but that he inspects it. That means he devotes all of his attention to the matter, or you might say he examines it. And so when the Lord sees that which is going on, whether it be for good or for evil, he's not just looking at the action, but he actually is looking deep down in, and he's examining it looking into the motives of it. This is what Jeremiah said. He said, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, it says, but I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. That's pretty scary to think about, isn't it? I examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. No wonder, David, read Psalm 139. It could be sort of your your homework from today's study here. Read Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, David is talking about the omnipresence, that God is all present, that God is all knowing, these ideas there. And then he concludes that, or toward the end of that particular Psalm, he says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't handle such knowledge, that the Lord is even able to see my intentions and my thoughts and my motives. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. Now, depending on what's going on inside of your heart, that's either a very terrifying concept or it's a very comforting concept. This idea of knowing that God's eyes are ever upon you, that's either terrifying or comforting. It it could be very, very sweet indeed when a person has confidence and hope in Jesus Christ. Then you're like, wherever I go, Lord, there you are. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down into the depths, you are there. Even there, your hand will guide me if I'm on the far side of the sea. That's very comforting to me if I'm in a right place with the Lord. But for the wicked to know that wherever I go, whatever I do, and I think I'm in secret and no one will know it, for the wicked to know that God even sees that, that's not comforting at all. That's a terrifying thought. Now, I don't want to give the impression that those that are good, as the Bible says, and please let me remind you, there are none of us that are good. Any goodness that we find within ourselves, any goodness that someone says, you're a good person, is because of the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that the righteousness of Christ has become the righteousness of men. We take on his righteousness because of his work on the cross. And if that is the case and we're pursuing after the things of God, then in the context of the book of Proverbs, we would be in the category of good. But please don't make the mistake of thinking you're the one that's accomplishing it. Okay? And the opposite of that, I'm not interested in the ways of God or the sacrifice of God, Jesus Christ. Well, that person's in the category of the wicked. Now, so what I don't want to say is, okay, so here I am. I'm in relationship with God. I'm looking to walk in his ways. I don't want to give this impression 
that I never do anything wrong. And I'm certainly, I'm sure you don't either want to give that impression about yourself because we all know the reality. There are times that we struggle, times that we sin, and so on. But, so that is to say, it's not to say that the good only and continuously are doing good while the wicked or the evil are always and continuously doing wicked. But what makes this so terrifying or so comforting even when we may fall and we may stumble or we may luckily get it right if we are prone to do evil, is that under the all-seeing eyes of the Lord, what makes that comforting is we know that there is a covering for our sin. And so as I'm trying to walk with the Lord and I stumble and I fall, perhaps with something I say that comes out of my mouth, and I, I do return a harsh word uh, to somebody that has you know, exhibited wrath to me, What is comforting to know is that the Lord is there in the presence of it and my sin has been covered. That's comforting. What's terrifying is to know that there is no covering for my sin. So for the one that is in Jesus Christ, sin confessed is sin removed. Helpful little phrase for you to memorize. Sin confessed is sin removed through the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. But for the unrepentant sinner, there is no covering for sin. And the only thing, Hebrews 10.27 says this, the only thing that remains for that individual is a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume their adversaries. Should that concern an individual? Absolutely. So no wonder it's terrifying. And so we look to the covering of Jesus Christ. As the passage says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I think it's a helpful reminder for us next time we're tempted to either commit evil or cherish evil within our hearts or to commit good, know that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, okay? Verse 4, it says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So again, the mouth. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Now, the idea of a perverse tongue is twofold. It could take on both of these meanings. Number one, it's using the tongue in such a way that it was not intended to be used. You're perverting the use of that tongue, using the tongue in such a way that it was not intended to be used. And of course, we're talking about what God intended for that particular tongue to do and how he intended that tongue to be used. In addition, within this idea of a perverse tongue, is when you use your tongue with the intent to deceive. Because the word could also mean twisted. And so you're trying to twist your words in order to deceive a person. And so when our words tear other people down, they're not doing what God designed for our words to do. And thus, it's a perverse tongue. And when our words are not communicating truth, but they're twisting it perhaps in some particular way, they're not doing what God intended for your tongue, your words to do, and thus, they are a perversion. And so it's important for us to know, what is God's intent? What's his desire for my words? God's intent and his desire for the words that come out of our mouths would be that we speak life into another person's life. And Solomon says this, he says that a gentle tongue can be a tree of life. And he goes on, but an evil tongue, these are my words here, but an evil tongue is wounding. He says it breaks a person's spirit. So your tongue can either give life to a person or it can break their spirit. That's a lot of power within your tongue. And so we want to use our mouths, our tongues in the way that the Lord designed for them to be used. The gentle tongue is healing. 
as some versions translate this particular passage, the gentle tongue is healing. So wholesome, gracious speech refreshes the listener. It's healing. I think it also refreshes the speaker. As we speak such words into other people's lives, it's an encouragement to us. It soothes us. It revives us. And so again, to quote something that Solomon's going to say later, but we've quoted it many times earlier, he says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat of its fruits. And so God's call for us then is to be a people, whether we're with church people or we're home with our family or we're out with work or we're gathering in some restaurant with a bunch of friends and watching the game later on. God's desire for us is to speak words into other people's lives that will be an encouragement to them and will embed, if you will, or imbue life into them. Amen? Does that make sense? Let's be those people. Verse 5, Solomon says this, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. A wise son or daughter will receive the instructions of their mom or dad. And if necessary, they will heed their reproof. Young people, amen? One dad is doing this to his kid. You know, come on. Oh, there they're going here. A wise son or daughter will receive the instructions of their mom and dad, and if necessary, will heed their reproof. The fool, on the other hand, as we read in our passage, despises such instruction. You very rarely can replace the value of experience. It's just so incredibly valuable experience. You know, even if you've read all the different books in the world and, you know, you've done all these studies and you've watched all these videos and and so on and so forth, there's just something about having applied what you know in an experience. And a mom or dad who should, one would hope, love their children more than anyone on this earth likely ever will. Maybe a spouse, I guess, will come along and love them more. But a mom or dad who loves and cares for and desires, or at least should, good things for their child is going to want to speak good things into the life of their child. And a wise son or daughter is going to receive those instructions. It's the fool that will say, you know, I'm not interested or I don't need that. And a person's receptiveness to instruction and if need be reproof, as it says there, a person's receptiveness to those things is evidence as to you're you're building your life in a wise way or you're building your life in a foolish way. And too many people, oftentimes young people, as they're starting to grow and they think, I know it all, I don't need anyone to tell me, too many refuse to be corrected, perhaps thinking that that's going to reveal them as some kind of a fool. Well, I'd rather just figure it out on my my own or whatever. And they refuse to be corrected, thinking people are going to think they're a fool. The reality is just the opposite is the case. And so whether you're a son or daughter of your mom or dad, or just in general, a son or daughter of the king, If you refuse to be corrected thinking that's going to make you a fool, that reveals that you are a fool because the wise person realizes that they need to be corrected and perhaps even they need to be reproved, reproved, I should say, at some point in time. And we want to be those particular people. Right, friends? All right, verse 6, it says, In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Now, I think this could speak to a couple of ideas, certainly. We've been seeing this idea that a righteous person tends to, in their life, make good and wise decisions as they submit themselves to God in his ways. And the result of those decisions, oftentimes, it tends to advance them in society and succeed in society and increase their income, those sorts of things. 
And so in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. So it, it could simply mean that. We've seen examples of that, and that's certainly something that you could argue. I think more likely the idea here is that the house of the righteous contains far greater treasure than this world could ever offer. And that's what makes that home so wealthy. And so in the house of the righteous, you're going to find kindness in that home, just the way people treat one another. In the house of the righteous, you're going to find mercy and compassion and forgiveness in that home. As people have to live close with one another, they're inevitably going to wrong one another and fail one another. And forgiveness is found in that home. You're going to find peace and joy and love and grace. Now, doesn't that sound like a home you want to live in? And yet it may not be huge and you may not have 10 bedrooms in the house or whatever and everybody gets their own bedroom and an additional playroom or something and their own bath and all these kinds of things. It may not be wealthy in this world standards, but a home like that, filled with compassion and mercy and love and joy and peace and forgiveness, you can't buy a place like that. It's the wealthiest of places that a person can find themselves. It's a blessing to be a home, uh, part of a home uh, marked by those things and far greater than anything this world could possibly offer. And so, as we see there, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. Continuing on, it says, The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not so the heart of fools. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not so the heart of fools. I think this verse is very similar to verse 2. Earlier, the tongue of the wise commends knowledge. Well, here we have the lips of the wise spreading knowledge. And he reminds us again that a wise individual spreads or passes on the knowledge, their knowledge, and they do so in a right fashion. Remember I said earlier, you can use knowledge in a wrong way. Well, they do so in uh, the right fashion. The words of the wise are going to build others up, as I said, opposed to tearing them down. As it says in the New Testament, they're going to be words of edification. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace to the hearers. What if we all took that verse, memorized that verse, and committed ourselves to living that verse? What kind of an impact would that have on our relationships with each other, our impact with uh, our relationships with those that we work with and come into contact with, that no corrupt talk would come out of our mouth, but only that, you can add the word only there properly, only that which is edifying. Only that which is build, building up and that may minister grace unto the hearers. And so with Solomon's words there, again, we're reminded that the lips of the wise spread knowledge. That's the type of people we want to be. Again, the Lord speaks about the words that come out of our mouths. Verses 8 and 9, we'll take those together. It says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Verse 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he who loves him who pursues uh, righteousness. Two things here are referred to as being an abomination. Again, remember how strong a word that word abomination is. They are this. Number, verse 8, Solomon calls the sacrifice of the wicked. He calls that an abomination. And then in verse 9, he says that the way of the wicked is is an abomination. Again, a really strong word. The word abomination means to express the worst contempt. It, it's to look at something with disgust. And so in your mind, you can think of things that are just disgusting, and you, you kind of turn away from it. I've, we had some maggots in our gar garbage can outside last summer, 
and I opened it up to drop some other garbage in there. And it was just, ooh, close that. Honey, the garbage needs, you know, or whatever, you know, you, you find the, can we ask the children to bring the garbage out? You know, it, but it was disgusting and you want to turn away from it. The Lord calls two things here an abomination. The first one in verse nine, it says, or the first one I'm going to draw your attention to, it says he looks on the way of the wicked, that it's an abomination. He looks on the way of the wicked with contempt. He's disgusted by it. And I think we can understand that. Some of the things that men's hearts lead men and women to engage in are disgusting. And it, it, we, we look on it, and here we are, we're sinners, and we look on it with contempt. And oh my gosh, how could somebody do that? How could somebody say that? And so we understand this idea of how the Lord can look on those things with contempt. He's the Holy One. If it causes contempt in us, it must cause uh, greater contempt certainly within him. I think what's a little more surprising is verse 8, though. Because verse 8 says the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It's a little more surprising that that would be similarly despised. Because the idea of a sacrifice there is an offering. Somebody's doing a religious uh, service of some sort. I, I almost expect the Lord to say, well, at least you're trying. I know you're not perfect. I know you get it wrong sometimes. But at least you're trying to bring a religious sacrifice. But what Solomon reminds us of is this. It's what the Bible teaches us. That... Uh, it's the worthlessness of the ritual without reality. The worthlessness of the ritual without reality. This person's religious sacrifice means nothing to God when the person's heart continues to remain alienated from God. And that's why Jesus would say there is the, I, he says, I am the way. Not one of many ways. And many people think that. That there are many ways that we can get to God. What really matters is sincerity that's all it's really about, that God will be happy with that. He'll look on that. He'll see the condition of your heart. If there's a sincerity of your heart, well, then we can go from there. That's not what the Scripture teaches. What the Scripture teaches is there's one way to God the Father, and that is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here you have a person that is bringing their sacrifice. Their way is far from God. They're doing whatever they want. It's contemptible to God. But they bring their sacrifice hoping or expecting that God will say, all right, well, that'll do. But again, that person's sacrifice means nothing to God when the person's heart continues to remain alienated from God. If your way is given over to wickedness, your sacrifice is nothing but a farce. And we see an example of this found in the book of 1 Samuel. You may be familiar. I believe it's chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you have the increasingly rebellious King Saul. Now, King Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel, and when he came into power, he, was, he saw himself as a nobody. Actually, they were about to make him king, and he ran and hid himself in sort of like a, a luggage closet of sorts there so he could hide behind things because he didn't want to be king. He didn't feel he should be king. You know what the Lord said, essentially? You're the perfect king. I'm looking for a guy like you that doesn't think he can do it. So I can work through that. But as time went on, I think Saul was king for about 20 years or so. If I remember, I, I want to say 40 years. I think he was king for 40 years. As time went on, uh, Saul, he began to get more and more confident in that role. He began to do whatever he really wanted to do and go in all sorts of directions. And it all comes to a head one time when Saul decides, you know, I know it's the job of the priest to offer the sacrifice, but I'm the king and I'm going to offer it anyway priest you know we told him to be here an hour ago and he's still not here and so we're just going to go ahead and do what we want to do and so he goes ahead and he offers the sacrifice there and again he was an increasingly rebellious 
person and he goes ahead and does what he's not supposed to do and don't you know just as he does so Samuel the priest comes walking onto the scene the prophet and priest and Samuel in this dialogue with him he says to him what have you done and Saul justifies what he did well I had to do something you weren't here yet you know the men were getting restless all this kind of stuff and Samuel says this he says has the Lord such great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of any ram you could bring. It's a Bible verse I memorized when I first became a Christian. And it's been one of those little things you just keep saying in your heart. It's not about what you're doing. It's about where your heart is, Greg. It's about where your heart is. Is your heart right with the Lord? Are you walking in obedience? Because hath the Lord or hath the Lord such great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is always better than the sacrifice. And for anyone that thinks their disobedience will be overlooked because they've brought some sacrifice, well, God, I went to church every Sunday. I dropped money in the bucket, Lord, and I donated so they could build the cathedral or what have you. For anyone to think that their sacrifice will override, if you will, their disobedience, they are sorely mistaken. That, I gave you the example of Saul. That's not just a Saul problem. That was a nation of Israel problem. It's a nation of America problem. It's a problem that is in our own hearts as well. And in the, the book of Isaiah, as, as uh, Isaiah is, is working with the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, he addresses the same thing. He says this, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Now, again, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, the Lord says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beast, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks and of lamb or of lambs or of the goats. The point is, I want your heart. And if you read the context of it, you'll see that their heart was very far from God, yet the sacrifices kept going on. Their lives and their worship, quote-unquote, were not lining up. And in a sense, the Lord is saying, look, if I have to choose between your life and your act of worship, I want your life. That's what I want. I want you to walk in obedience. With New Testament eyes, we know that our lives are the sacrifice don't we? Romans chapter 12, it says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the sacrifice the Lord is looking for, a life that is committed to him to walk in his ways by his strength. There's only one sacrifice that the Lord will ultimately accept, and that's the sacrifice of his own dear son. That's the sacrifice that the wicked person needs to come to God with. Not their own religious activities, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's the one that will bring pardon. And any good deed outside of that sacrifice, any good deed brought in response to that, the Lord will not honor. As a matter of fact, he will call it contemptible, or he will look upon it with disgust. As it says another place in the scripture, all other acts of righteousness done to appease God outside of the work that Jesus Christ has done and then our good deeds in response to what he has done. All other acts of righteousness, the Bible calls filthy rags. You're familiar with it, Isaiah 64. All of us become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins will sweep us away. 
We must come to God in the way that he has prescribed we come to God and then give our lives in response in service to that. Does that make sense? Amen. Let's go on. Verse 10, it says, There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way, and whoever hates reproof will die. Now, earlier Solomon said, whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Prudent. Here he says, whoever hates reproof will die. Correction and reproof are the means by which a person can keep themselves from the way of the wicked and the end thereof, which is, as it says here, death. Correction and reproof are the means by which a person can keep themselves from the way of the wicked and the end thereof, which is death. And in God's love and in God's mercy and in God's grace, you put all the characteristics of God, the heart of God, his love for you, his mercy in your life, his grace that he wants to shed on your life. In all of those things, God brings people and he brings events into our lives to correct us and set us on the path of life. So God's grace corrects us, his mercy corrects us, his love for us corrects us. As it says in the New Testament, no father disciplines his, his, a, a father loves his child and thus he disciplines his child. And the Lord does the same thing with us. He corrects us in the process. Now, if that correction fails to work, what does the Lord do? Well, I gave it a shot. You go your own way kind of thing. If, I'll be here if you want to. That's not what he does because he loves us so much and he wants to show his grace in our lives so much and he has so much mercy for us. He doesn't want us to end up at the end of the road, which is the place of death. Because he does so, if the correction doesn't work, then the Lord is going to bring into our lives discipline, reproof. And if that discipline doesn't work, as it says in our passage here, the Lord is going to bring severe discipline into our lives. He's not going to write it all, us off. He's going to continue to come back to us, continue to come back to us, make it more and more painful, just like you probably did if you were raising your children, if you are raising your children, or your parents did to you when you were a child, that you start off with sort of an initial talking. Yeah, we don't do that here. We don't kick the cat. It's just not something we do in our family. You keep kicking the cat, the discipline's going to go higher and higher and higher until it becomes so painful for you, you realize, I don't want to do that anymore. And that's what the Lord does in our lives. Is that mean of him? It's an easy one. No. That is loving of him. And so he keeps bringing these things in our lives until we finally come to our senses, if you will, like the prodigal son. And when we come to our senses, we change, if you will, the course of our lives. His ultimate goal is to keep us from the path, uh, ending up where the path of wickedness leads, as it says in our passage here, death. And so that severe discipline, if it needs to come, it is for our good. And the wise person will see it as such. Sadly, though, the foolish person, the wicked person here, because of their affinity for their sin, I just love my sin. I want my sin. Does sin feel good? Almost always, yes. If it didn't feel good, it'd be like Brussels sprouts. No, none of us would eat it. We wouldn't struggle with it or anything like that. Yes, sin is appealing. Sin feels good. We're drawn to sin. We think it satisfies us, but we know the truth. We know where it ends up. We know what it leads to. 
And eventually it is no longer satisfying, and so we have to keep going down that path to keep trying something that's going to satisfy us. But the end thereof is death. But the foolish or wicked person loves their sin so much, they hate reproof, as Solomon says here, because they don't want to be reformed. I want to remain in this particular place here. And it's not said here, but the the person that loves their sin as they do and that hates reproof Don't be surprised if the Lord brings you into that person's life if they're going to hate you too. And so you speak a word of truth into their life and they're going to hate you. They're going to be angry with you, mad at you for speaking a word of reproof into their life. And if you've been on the receiving end of that, you know that's painful. But you just keep speaking the truth, God's truth, not your truth. Just keep speaking the Lord's truth into that person's life and hopefully those words will resonate if there's life within that person or somewhere where that seed can go down and begin to bear fruit. The Lord will use your words, if they're his words, to resonate and hopefully bring them to the place where they repent of their sin. And that's God's goal, and that should be your goal as well as you speak into a person's life. Now skip down to verse 12 because it it sort of addresses the same thing. In verse 12, it, it says, A scoffer does not like to be reproved, and he will not go to the wise. Now, because the scoffer, the scornful, I think some versions says, say, hates to be corrected, Solomon here points out that their tendency then, because they don't want to be corrected, their tendency then will be to shop around until they find the one that won't, won't reprove them. A scoffer is a person, we've looked at the word before, a scoffer is a person that essentially says, God, I know what you say, but I'm not interested in following that. Now, they may not actually say that with their words, but essentially that's what their actions say. And because the scoffer hates reproof, uh, the one who hates to be reproved, as it says here, refuses to go to a wise person. So it says a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. And the reason is, is because he doesn't want to hear, she doesn't want to hear what the wise person is going to say. And that's where I get this idea that they will kind of shop around flip around, turn the magazines or the books or search on the internet to finally find someone that lines up with their thinking. And say, yeah, I know all these people here, they don't agree, but I found this person over here that does. That's a very dangerous place to be because all of us need correction and from time to time we need reproof. And it's a mark of wisdom that not only do we receive the wisdom and correction of others, but if need be, we seek out the wisdom of others. And Solomon here, notice he says, they will not go, they will not do that. And of course, the reason why they will not do it is for fear that they might hear something that they don't want to hear. You know, it's a struggle. There are times when, it's not like a discipline matter, but it's where I, I sort of want some insight and advice on something. And so I'll reach out to some of my pastor friends that have been doing this for a long time. I'll reach out to them for some insight or advice. And there are some people, and I don't want to ask him about this one because I know what he's going to say. I think I'll call this one over here because he probably agrees with me. That's really bad, right? And so I purposefully call the other guy. And I'm hoping, please, let him be in a good mood, all right, to agree with me or, or whatever it may be. It's really dangerous when we avoid the information from the person we don't think we're going to agree with and we just seek out those that we are going to agree with. That's dangerous. Let me just tell you, I am so, I used to love the news. I'm coming over here. 
Yeah. I used to love the news. I used to watch the news all the time, Foxy and all these things. And I just sit there and I gobble up. My wife's like, oh, okay, you know, or whatever. And it would be on and I'd fold the laundry and I'd be watching all this. I am so sick of the news, if I may just say. Because essentially, here's what it is. If I'm a liberal, I'll turn on MSNBC and I'll listen for a while and they'll convince me why I'm the smartest guy in the world. And if I'm a conservative, I'll go to the other side and I'll watch Fox and I'll listen and, and I'll be convinced why liberals are so dumb and I'm the smartest guy in the world. And it's just essential. That's what it is. And it's just, you know, just build you up. And then I get on my Facebook, which I'm not on anymore. By the way, if you're sending me messages, I'm not on there because I'm sick of it. Alrighty, so call my wife or whatever and she'll tell me to look or whatever. But, you know, you go through Facebook and if I understand correctly, Facebook has a way, oh, you like these kinds of articles? Let's give you more of those. And so then my life, see, everybody agrees with me. No, that's not it. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that. Okay, I, I just threw it out there. It's just how I feel. It's just driving me crazy. And so I, I'm not a liberal. I happen to be a conservative. I like to listen, watch MSNBC. And I know that's blasphemous for some people. I watch it to challenge myself and to think through what they have to say and to see if it's a good argument that they have. And you know what? Sometimes they do. Can you believe that, you conservative people? Sometimes they do. And I know there are some liberals that are sitting here. You need to turn on Fox News and you need to watch it and listen from time to time because sometimes they have a good point. That's all I wanted to say about it, all right? Let's move on. Verse 11. We skipped verse 11, so let's go back to verse 11. Uh, it's our final verse today. It says this, Sheol and Aband uh, Abaddon, or something like that, Abaddon, lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of men. Sheol and Abaddon. And if you have different versions, it, it may use different words there. The word Sheol, sometimes in the Bible it refers to hell, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, or it can also refer to the grave. And so you may see different things. It might say hell lies open before the Lord in your Bible. Or it might say the grave lies open before the Lord. Abaddon, or I keep saying it wrong, Abaddon is a word, it means destruction. Interesting, in the book of Revelation, the term is used to, de to describe Satan. He's, he's not describing, but that, like a name that is given to Satan in the book of Revelation. But it is a word which means uh, destruction. And so Solomon saying here, Sheol and Abaddon, Abaddon, whatever, it lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the children of men. He may either be saying this, that both hell and the devil lie open before the Lord, how much more so the hearts of the children of men. That may be where he's going. Or he may be speaking symbolically of the idea of the unseen world, the grave. Either way, his point is this. If God knows all about what transpires in death and hereafter, how much more does he know the thoughts and secrets of the children of men? That's the point that he's making. It's similar to the verse we saw earlier about the eyes of the Lord uh, are ever upon us here. The book of Hebrews, it says this. It says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto, him, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If the Lord is able to see through the depths and the of the deception of Satan, how much more should he be able to search out the hearts of men? And this is why we say often this phrase, allow the Lord to search out your heart. I say it often, allow the Lord to search your heart on these things, I'll say. Because our hearts lie open before the Lord. And because they lie open before the Lord, it should be our response to let our hearts lie open before the Lord. And what I mean by that is it's already open. As the Lord speaks into it, will you receive that? 
Will you allow this, the Lord to search out your heart, the deepest places of who you are? Will you let him expose the tendencies and the sins which are only going to serve to alienate you from him? Will you allow him to show you those things? Will you respond when he does and give those things over to him? That's what we're called to do, knowing that he's the one that searches us out, knowing that he's the one that knows the way to go, what is good and what is not good, what's going to be helpful and not helpful for us. When he shows those things to us, will you respond? You should, because it's for your good. That's the only reason he does it. The end thereof is life, abundant life, the life you were created to live. I feel like Joel Osteen. The life that you were created to live, the abundant life in relationship with God, he knows the way to get there. And he reveals that to us. Will you listen? When God speaks, listen, respond, and walk in obedience. And you'll be blessed for doing so, and you'll be glad that you did. Amen? Amen. Let's stop there. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.